Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. This is the first of our Lab Pig series, and today our guest is Dominic Scalise, who will be telling us a little bit about his current research. Also with me today are Anastasia. Hello. Boya. Hello. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Dominic is a postdoctoral scholar in Lulu Chien's lab at Caltech. He earned his PhD in chemical and biomolecular engineering from Johns Hopkins, where he was advised by Rebecca Shulman, and his BS in mechanical engineering from UC Berkeley. His work focuses on developing a stored program chemical computer and powering circuits using DNA buffer reactions. Dominic, hi. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So perhaps you could start by walking us through the concept of a stored program chemical computer and telling us a bit about your work towards realizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, to, to get into what is a stored program computer, I think it's best to go back in time a little bit and talk about what were computers like before electronic computers had the stored program concept in place. So in the 1940s, uh, the first generation of electronic computers were actually programmed by like rewiring them. So a computer programmer would go into the room that is the computer and unplug all of the connections between the components and then replug them in according to their circuit diagram. So each computer program was effectively a brand new computer, a, a unique device just designed for that particular algorithm. And I think most chemical computers right now are effectively the same type of device. So we create a brand new chemical reaction network every time we want to do a new molecular algorithm. So this is frustrating because it takes a long time to program things um, and they're error prone. And furthermore, the, the size of the algorithms that we can run is, is relatively small. So right now, if you want to make a brand new molecular circuit, it's going to take at least months if you're incredibly lucky or quite likely years or for some people perhaps even a full degree to get from the planning stage to actually implementing and debugging and getting rid of all the leak uh, in the circuit. And and Boya, he's, he's here as the, uh, one of the creators of the leakless DNA uh, strand displacement circuit. So, so she knows how incredibly challenging and important it is to to identify and address those leaks. That's where we spend a lot of our time. But um, the solution, or, or one solution, to make programming a lot easier so that it doesn't take months and you don't have to debug the leak of your brand new circuit every single time, is to make one universal circuit that can run any algorithm and then feed that universal circuit instructions to tell it what particular algorithm to, algorithm to run. And it might take a little bit more time to get that one universal circuit um, running and debugged. But once you have it done, you shouldn't need to debug it every single time you want to run it. So um, there's a few quotes that I have pulled up here that uh, from early electronic computers, uh, computer programmers that, that I like that capture this pre-stored program concept um, issues. Herman Goldstein, who... Um, who was one of the computer scientists that built the famed ENIAC computer said that the thing that makes the modern computer revolution possible is software. The older machines before software required one to clumsily perform hand pluggings of connections, which took hours, indeed days. It meant that programming was an art, a very dark art, 
and it meant that the total instructions that one could write was comparatively small. So he's express expressing this frustration with the old style of programming. And then Turing has a, has a nice quote I like where he describes um, what, a, what it's like to program with a stored program computer. And he says, it's intended that the setting up of the machine for new programs shall be virtually only a matter of paperwork. There'll be no internal alterations to be made, even if we suddenly wish to switch from calculating energy levels of a neon atom to enumerating the groups of order 720. How can one expect a machine to do all of this multitude variety of things? The answer is that we should consider the machine as carrying out orders given to it in a standard form, which it is able to understand. So software is that list of instructions, the orders you're telling the computer to do. And a stored program computer is simply a computer that takes software and stores it in memory and executes those instructions. There's a long-winded answer to your simple question. So what, what's your approach to doing this? Um, how are you tackling this problem? Yeah. So the first thing you need in order to have a stored program computer is a lot of memory. You need a way to store your program. It's, it's, it's in the name of the computer, a place to put your software so that it can execute it later. And I spent a long time trying to figure out how do we get uh, a lot of memory in a computer. For reference, most strand displacement circuits have no rewritable memory. Um, it would be probably a nature paper if somebody built a strand displacement circuit that could encode one single bit of memory in a bistable switch. That would be that would be fantastic if someone does that. Um, but we don't need one bit. We need hundreds or thousands of bits if we want to store a, a large program, even, even a, what we would consider a relatively small program from an electronic perspective. So I think the first thing we need is a way to store a lot of chemical memory that can be addressed, uh, accessed by chemical circuits. We've all heard of like terabyte in a teaspoon, George Church, like taking all of the internet and compressing it and putting it onto DNA. But that doesn't work for, for a chemical computer because a chemical computer can't access that. You need an external synthesizer and sequencer in order to read and write that type of memory. So if we want chemical circuits to be able to do it, they need to be able to directly read this memory. So what I'm hoping to do is have the memory encoded on the surfaces of DNA origami nanotiles. Um, that's one of the many things that attracted me to Lulu's lab is, is her expertise in these sorts of surface circuits, where each bit of memory is just represented by the identity of the strand at each location on your origami nanotile. And a single tile can have perhaps a 10 by 10 array. You have 100 bits a rewritable memory on each tile. And if you find a way to multiplex your tiles, then you can easily get from hundreds to thousands or quite a bit more memory. And that's the, the first piece. You need a way to encode all of your program. Um, the second piece you need is the processor. So something that's gonna actually go and execute all of those programs, um, all of those instructions. And for this, um, oh, there's a few different approaches to it. You can have a solution, a circuit in solution, um, or you can do all of your computation on circuits. I started, uh, all my work previously has been in solution, so that was the direction that I was 
thinking to go, but I actually think it's maybe more elegant to keep everything on the surface of the origami, uh, make some things like parallel computing a lot easier. So in order to build that processor, now you, we need to make sure it's not too complicated. Um, a, if you look at the processor inside of your laptop or cell phone, they're going to be much, much more complicated than anything we can implement. And perhaps we don't even want to implement something that's exactly like a modern electronic computer. It's not optimized for chemical computing. So I'm taking inspiration from uh, another very early electronic computer um, because in the 40s and 50s, electronic components were very finicky um, and very expensive. And so the first generation of computer scientists back then had to deal with the same sorts of issues that we were dealing with. Um, their bulbs would burn out instead of having molecules that had low yield. They would have poor connections instead of leak, but they still were dealing with fundamentally the same issues. So uh, the design that, that I'm working off of is uh, a Turing machine, but not the Turing machine. It's, a, it's another type of machine that Turing designed called the Automated Computing Engine, or ACE. And uh, this is when Turing took Turing machines, which are this abstract model, and decided, let's actually build this with physical hardware um, and optimize it for the types of hardware that we have. Um, and he says that uh, the Americans would make very complicated hardware so that they don't have to write elegant programs, whereas the Brits, they write really elegant programs so they can use very simple hardware. And because their hardware is so simple, they can build it cheaper and make it more robust, which is great when electronic components didn't work very well. So since our chemical components don't work very well right now, I'm thinking this is a fantastic uh, model for, for what I'd like to do. It actually lends itself very nicely to what molecules do. Essentially, every instruction in the ACE computer is a transfer of information from one location in memory to another location in memory. And we can think of this in a molecular circuit as just a reaction. Two molecules come together, they can transmit information from one molecule to the other. Or in this case, two nanotiles come together, they can transmit information from the surface of one tile to the surface of another tile. Um, so it's, it's very natural in a chemical reaction sense to build this type of transfer reaction. It's actually all you really need to build the ACE computer is a way to transfer information and perhaps transform it in the process of, of moving it over. So uh, maybe you don't overwrite the memory that's encoded in one address or at one tile. Maybe you add the incoming memory uh, into the existing uh, incumbent memory. So my goal is to make, with these nanotiles, a lot of these transfer instructions and use it to build an ACE-style automated computing engine with molecules. So, so I'm not completely aware of, of the A-style, but um, is, so is, is your idea to have a kind of centralized computing, a central processing unit almost, um, and then memory around it that it interacts with, or is it more of an extended um, compute, central processing unit and extended memory that interact with one another? Yeah, so <clears throat> we could do a central processing unit. First of all, this will be all floating around in solution. So. Um, it won't be uh, geometrically uh, localized in one central location. Um, but the other issue with a central processing unit is it can only do one thing at one time, and there's a bottleneck for it to access all of the different memory, so it's relatively slow. One thing that molecules do very well 
is parallel processing. Um, as we saw with the, uh, the Hamiltonian path problems in the 90s. And so it would be nice to have a processor design, but not make it just one central processor. Let thousands or 10 to the 14 processors operate on your memory all at the same time. The key thing, though, is to keep them all synchronized so that they execute your instructions at the right time and one of them doesn't get ahead of all the others. Uh, synchronization sounds like a hard problem. Um, what kind of approaches to that are you taking? Um, are you maybe taking inspiration from like cell the way the cell cycle synchronizes the entire cell? Um, or, or what approach are you taking? I'm not taking that inspiration, although that's a fantastic inspiration. Perhaps should be taken. Um, but yes, there you need a way to synchronize all of the components of your test tube instead of your cell. Um, my first approach... Well, my first approach was more of a, of a central unit, a single one, uh, and I figured the problem of building a stored program chemical computer that can execute chemical software is already so far beyond what I know how to do. Let me just start by having a an oscillator that synchronizes everything. So when the oscillator goes on, then everything fires and does its transfer instructions. Um, but that, again, doesn't let you do take harness the, the full control of the, the beauty of molecular programming. So now my approach is don't have a central oscillator, but have each tile uh, type have some communication. It bumps into its identical copies of itself. And when it bumps into enough copies that all have the same information on the surface, then it knows that it's ready to go for the next instruction. And this way you can synchronize and only have uh, each instruction fire after everybody has caught up. So you have some asynchronous um, check before you run the next instruction. But this essentially is each tile turns into, each type of tile turns into an oscillator on its own. Um, the population will fire, wait for the next rest of the population to catch up, and then fire again. Do you need, um, like, if, um, if I'm imagining, so you will have, um um on the surface there will be multiple com computer component or multiple computers so that can allow parallel computation so your input to those computers need to be able to react um to one specific computer instead of the others or how do you control the crosstalk yeah so one thing that that lulu's lab has done um greg and philip and, and lulu's lab have um done is DNA origami tile displacement, um, where you have uh, tiles with particular addresses encoded on the, the sticky ends, um, just like Greg was doing on the Mona Lisa paper um, that you all have probably have seen. Um, and the tiles can find their appropriate address and just bind to those tiles. Um, I'd also like it to be reversible, so they bind to their neighbor, transfer information, and then dissociate and go find another tile with the same address and keep communicating in that manner. So I don't want to have one big origami with 10,000 computers on it. I want to have 10,000 little origami, each with one computer on it, and have them all communicate by finding the appropriate address. Does that answer your question, Boya? Probably, yes. So um, so you're saying um, 
like imagine some input react with the computer that triggers tile displacement so that computer is locked won't be affected by other inputs some kind of thing like that well the inputs in this case um will either just be another tile that i've put in that has some information encoded on its surface and then it can just go and bind to all of the input tiles of the many different computers and just transfer its information to those or uh, you would have to have some other way to let's say you want to sense some environmental stimulus to get that stimulus encoded onto an origami first I'm not focused on getting an external stimulus encoded on a surface I'll just encode it myself anneal it and add it to the mixture um, but I don't think that I want it to I, I mean I want the inputs to explore all of the different parallel computers so I don't want it to stop after it's communicated this input to one. I want the input tiles to keep going and finding all of their potential neighbor tiles. So let's say if you have an input um, one one and input one zero, and the first bit reacts with all the computer, and then the second bit, how do you differentiate zero and a one? Yeah. So each one of those will need a separate address either along the side of the tile saying the address uh, 1, 1, and the address 1, 0. Um, it can either be on the side of the tile, or it can be also doubly encoded on the surface of the tile. You can have the data 1, 1, along with the address 1, 1, 0, 1, whatever it is. Um, and that way, you have a unique address and data code along each edge of each tile. So then the processors say, well, Currently, I'm looking for the instruction at 1101, and if it bumps into anything else, well, then it won't it won't take that input at that time because it knows what what that particular processor tile is looking for. It only finds address 1101, and if it finds that, then it reads in its information and does whatever its computation is supposed to be. So, do you need to hard encode all the address pre um, hard code those address in the in your computer um, pre uh, before you load the input? So there's a few types. There's going to be the, the processor unit. Uh, that one, ideally, you should be able to make all of the processor mix and make one big batch of that and distribute it to everyone who wants to use it, and you never have to change it. After you've debugged it one time, you shouldn't need to make any of those connection changes. Then the memory units, um, those will have to have their addresses hard-coded beforehand in the same way that your flash hard drive has you know unique addresses for each one of its volatile bits um, and those ones can either be encoded on the surface or on the edge of the origami do you have a sense of complexity of your computer like and what's the limit limit of um, like how many bits of information you can compute and how how many components can be in your computer so most of what I said is still theory. I'm hoping to get the theory out first. Um, and then the experimental side um, is testing individual components. So experimentally, I can't tell you what the limits are. Theoretically, um, I think we should be able, theoretically using rates known about strand displacement and tile displacement and such, I think we should be able to get programs of the size of 10 to 100 lines, um, and those are much simpler than anything in, you can write in, in MATLAB or Python or C++, but I think would be um, 
quite useful, for instance, of uh, making a, a gel robot that can take 10 to 100 steps or, or interact with uh, the environment in, in 100 different ways, or a nanorobot that can sense 10 different um, medically relevant parameters in the body and then read them out later at a different time. Those sorts of, of program sizes, I think, are quite useful. Um, I would be hesitant to say, I mean, on paper, we could make it do whatever we want, but I'd be hesitant, hesitant to say that that would actually work experimentally for more than 10 to 100 lines. That's my current target. So from a theoretical perspective, how does the stored program approach compare to uh, like storing information in seeds for things like square tile algorithmic assembly? It's uh, a good question. It's a big question. Um, it lets you keep updating the information. And, and it also lets you not keep the history of the information as well. So if you're doing computation and seeds, for instance, with uh, Woods et al. paper, um, where they mix together a bunch of different uh, tiles from a relatively small library and make it do like many different sorting algorithms and, and interesting binary operations, um, you need to keep the, the whole history of the computation, first of all. Um, but uh, for those types of approaches, you're still needing to build a larger computer in order to execute larger algorithms, generally. Um, and I don't think you'll need to do that for this. You have more memory, but the processor size doesn't need to change. It's fixed regardless. Um, I don't think that answered the question very well, but if you'd like to rephrase a little bit, I can take another stab at it. Yeah. So, so at least from what you said, it sounds like the in terms of the complexity of problems you could solve with a computer, your approach should scale a lot better. Yeah, it scales. the 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 nice thing about a stored program computer is you don't need to change the size of the the processor. At least you just give it more memory, which ideally is something very simple that's just encoding binary bits. Um, so, in the Turing quote, he says, uh, "Let me flip back to it." Uh, there will be positively no internal alterations to make, even if we switch from calculating one thing to calculating something else. So it should be uniform sized. The computer should be of uniform size, regardless of what you want to execute. The cost, though, is then if you have a more complicated program, you need to give it more memory, which is like more tape in a traditional Turing machine. And you also need to give it more runtime. Um, but the circuit itself that's doing the computation that's doing the processing doesn't need to change ever and that means you don't have to debug it refine all the leaks and um, make sure that it works every single time you want to run a new algorithm um, and so you've mentioned reversibility and history um, and uh, th this this reminds me of, of some of so for example in DNA strand spacement your your you tend to be making a lot of waste strands and so species aren't necessarily that reusable and, and in tile assembly or, or such thing words, you, you have all that history data. Um, so it sounds like you're coming up with a way to, to mitigate those problems. Um, could you walk us through a bit what, how exactly your, your computational components are working? Is there a lot of component reuse or do you have to keep feeding in new components and restoring? And uh, when you say reversibility, uh, uh, is there, uh, wait, that's, a, that's another question. I'll, I'll let you focus on that for the time being. Uh... Fantastic questions. Um, I probably should be a little bit more humble. Uh, many of the reversibility uh, 
motifs are, are, are not mine and are not my ideas. So, uh, I should credit people appropriately. Um, I think going even back to, to Charles Bennett. So this is like prehistory of molecular computing. Um, it's been shown that if you have reversible, uh, computers, any type they can be much more energy efficient um and so i think that's more or less the principle that you're alluding to if we make things reversible we use less energy less waste we don't have to provide it with as much stuff and it can keep running for a lot longer um the there are two things that we might want to have be reversible in this system one is the tiles coming together and falling apart um that's relatively simple that's just dimerization and undimerization um but the the, the place where you could consume a lot of energy is with the reactions on the surface that are transferring bits of information from one tile surface to another tile surface. Um, and uh, many different labs are working on surface reactions on, on top of um, origami surfaces. And it's been shown in a, in a few different ones of these papers that if you make the surface reactions reversible, then you don't need to consume to irreversibly consume fuel strands from solution. Um, but if you make them irreversible, then you can end up needing to consume quite a bit of energy from floating around in your solution and fuel strands or, or wherever you're deriving your energy. That principle is predates me and is not something I've come up with. Um, but there is an interesting complication here, whereas if you have all of your surface reaction, every one of your surface reactions be reversible, um, as they are in, in Lulu's 2014 surface CRN paper, um, then it's very energy efficient, but you're not driving your circuit forward very far. Um, you're kind of waiting for it to do this random walk, and um, that can be very slow. Um, some people have found ways to make traps to try to get it. So if the random walks gets to a certain place, then it keeps going forward. In this case, I think we need to have some sort of either entropic or, or energetic trap that is going to make the results of each tile transfer step collect on its edge. So the internal parts of the uh, tile surface reactions can be reversible but their results need to get stuck on the edge so that when they bind to their neighbor tile they can quickly transfer everything to the next tile they don't have to wait for things from different parts of the tile to catch up and transfer over so in that sense i think that it will require some irreversible reactions otherwise things will be prohibitively slow and just never never complete but you are um, targeting reversible computation then? You're, you're kind of doing that fundamentally or, or are you also considering irreversible computation, um, like irreversible computational primitives um, in this? Especially as you mentioned, the Turing machine, which is intrinsically irreversible. Yeah. I am using other people's, I'm planning to use other people's motifs that are reversible, but mixing in one irreversible step which kind of breaks down calling the whole thing reversible. Uh, so I'm trying to keep the energy consumption as low as possible, but uh, this one extra step means you will irreversibly consume some level of energy to drive everything forward. And so in that sense, it's probably a little less um, aesthetically appealing, but it's more practical in that it drives the system forward. 
Well, in a sense, you do need some um, entropy method of driving that forward. If you had no irreversibility at all, then then as you say, it'd be a random walk. Right. And the longer and longer the computation goes, you know, because the time scales with the square of the number of operations, you'd never get to the end if you want to do a long thing. But um, if it, have you looked into making the frequency of irreversibility of these irreversible operations dynamics maybe you could keep lowering it as you wanted to reduce the energy or is that hard-coded in either the program or the computer yeah that's a good question i haven't explored dynamic reversibility where it'd be pretty cool to let the computer decide when it wants to do reversible steps irreversible steps um i haven't explored that so i can't speak very well to it but it certainly has tickled my imagination now that you brought it up it's like, what are the design principles behind when you're designing your stored program chemical computer, chemical computer what are the design principles behind choosing um, an architecture, an instruction set? Um, how do you actually decide like, how much you want to how much you want to leave for the programmer to do versus how much you want your computer to be able to do? Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to approach that. The instruction set in this case is stolen practically plagiarized from, from Turing, except transferred from electronics to molecular computing. Um, and the instruction set is a single instruction, and it's just transfer information from address A and put it in address B and find the next instruction at address C. So it's a single instruction, keeps things very simple. If we want to make machine level instructions that are more complicated than that, we could do so, but then we have to put in more complicated chemical hardware to actually implement those. And right now I'm saying that we're already at the the, the limit of what is uh, possible to build with existing technology. It's so hard to get it to work that I want the hardware as simple as possible. And I can't think of anything simpler, so I'll keep it at this single instruction set, um, just a transfer instruction. But you could get more advanced instructions if you build up the, the programming pyramid and no longer have a one-to-one -one correspondence with the machine level transfer instructions, but you can have addition and subtraction. Uh, you can have if statements. You can build up these transfer instructions towards those types of um, higher levels, and then you could you know keep building up multiplication or, I don't know, much fancier types of instruction sets at that point. But that's really compiled down from a, a human... Uh, readable programming language down to the um, machine level or the assembly level where you have one transfer instruction actually equals one tile binding, one um, hardware step like that. You could though then say, it invites the next question of why not have everything compiled down? Right? Like why even have any machine level instruction? Why not just build everything with one very large boolean circuit maybe with some memory device to allow you to do sequential logic as well and um i think that's valid in a sense like we can have a uh computer program on your on your laptop that says give me any program and i'll compile it down into these uh boolean circuits with some memory for you and that that's a valid approach but it then draws you back into each time you get a compiled program that the computer that the electronic computer tells you to build in the lab well then you have to debug that program and even though it works on the computer it's very likely that it won't work very well in the lab and you'll have to spend months or years debugging it also its size will probably change if you have a bigger program you'll need a bigger set of molecules to execute it so um so on one side you might say we want 
a bigger instruction set um, to make it more powerful. I don't think we can do that with existing chemical hardware. And on the other side, you might say I want no instruction set and just do large circuits. And I think that then defeats the purpose of making it so you don't have to debug the circuit every time. Uh, what kind of um, iteration time scale are you thinking could be could be achieved with this? So obviously you mentioned that uh, building a DSD circuit from a CRN could take months to optimize. Um, how, what, what do you envision being being the time set? Like, could I just order some more DNA and have it arrive the next day and use that for the memory? Or, or is it even quicker than that? Do I do something to the mixture itself? Yeah, I think it should be quicker than that, ideally. I don't know if I'll get it to work. We'll see. Maybe someone else will figure out the right way to get it to work. But ideally, if I could wave my magic wand and have a, some stored program computer, who, who cares which architecture, uh, work, you should have the processor or parallel processor set and I should only have to make that one time I kneel that I kneel like I don't know tens of liters of this stuff um, and I don't have to make it again for 10 years or a year maybe um, now you can just take that and add the memory to it but you do have to encode the memory somehow um, and that's probably going to be on a different set of tiles but you should be able to have one tile and you just specify the address on its sides and the um, initial information on its surface. And that should probably be possible to do with a very limited set of strands. So you shouldn't need to order new strands each time, just anneal one origami or your sets of input origami with the appropriate addresses and surface information. Um, and then mix that with your universe, your universal mix. Um, it's kind of like punching holes in, in punched cards. Uh, you know, you, you spend some time getting those punched cards ready, but then you don't have to go rewire the computer. You just feed the, the punched cards into the device and it can execute at that level. So I would like to be able to, and this is optimistic, but I would like someday to be able to run any arbitrary program within 24 hours of having conceived it. And can you imagine getting even better than a punch card approach? Can you imagine then actuating um, this this annealing in an automated way, maybe integrating electronically, something like that? Absolutely. So uh, one of the things, uh, Caltech is a fun place to work, but one of the, the many exciting things is uh, they have the Echo Liquid, Acoustic Liquid Handling Robot. And if any of you have used that, it's awesome. So uh it it works by having a little speaker underneath uh your tray and it plays a sound and that flicks a droplet from one tray to another in a very controlled manner and you can have 25 nano uh nanoliter resolution on these transfers so something that would have taken me like i don't know four hours to pipette in the past now is like 10 minutes and it kind of makes my my thumb hurt just to think of how much time i've spent um, doing that, but you're certainly right. Um, we can have these sorts of very fast electronics uh, and liquid handling robots prepare these devices for us. You could also do something uh, where you have your punched card uh, in, in quotation marks, uh, DNA origami, or however you're encoding the information, pre-made, pre-annealed, 
but with no information encoded on them and then flash it with some series of blue or UV lights that, uh, you know, pattern the surface in some way. Uh, I don't know how to do that, but you could imagine lots of more exciting ways to do this. Uh, the other limitation, though, is that um, I'm imagining these devices will be quite slow with cycle times on the order of quite a number of hours, presumably. Um, so even if at some point the limiting factor then returns to the execution of the program um, as well. So that I was actually going to ask about that. Um, I don't know if this is quite a naive question, but so do you pay a performance penalty by having by being able to do general computation in the same way that like application specific integrated circuits are very very fast at doing one thing? Are they analogous to the current way that we build um, um, uh, DNA circuits versus kind of a CPU which is able to do anything but is generally a lot slower? Yeah. Uh, probably in some ways, if you know the optimum uh, ASIC ap application specific integrated circuit, if you have an optimum design, uh, then it probably works faster than your stored program computer. Um, but the stored program computer can, that's if everything's working beautifully, perfectly, like in the electronic circuits where, you know, you can have twice the number of transistors and you don't have to worry about you know, leak where one transistor feeds information to another transistor halfway across the circuit. Um, so right now, I think the biggest issue that I've come across on the experimental side of strand displacement circuits is leak. And uh, that's where you spend almost all of your time trying to fix leak. And um, so the ASIC circuit might use, it might be faster but it might use more individual components because um, the stored program computer can reuse its components. It can have its memory, pull in some information, run one cycle of computation with the processor, but then it reuses the processor each time. So depending on the specific algorithm, the processor size might be smaller. And therefore, the potential for leak, which scales exponentially with size of the processing circuit, um, is going to be much smaller. So you can mitigate the leak again with like the leakless architecture, um, but it still is really, really hard to do. Um, so I would say that many of the types of things that I want to build, molecular algorithms I want to execute, are already, ha would have too much leak in order to run with anything that's not reusing its components. Because if you have 10 times as many components, you have a hundred times as much leak, and it just isn't going to work. Um, is the cycle time on the order of hours because you're synchronizing maybe the whole solution of these computational components? Have you looked into maybe asynchronous parallelism? Is that something that's possible? Yeah, so I think it, this will be asynchronous. Uh, so it's not every single step will be 10 hours or five hours or whatever. Um, but on average, I would expect these steps to take that long because the fastest reactions are going to be on the order of uh, minutes, and you're going to need many of these uh, reactions. Quite possibly, you won't just be using seven nucleotide toeholds. You'll need some slower things as well, and um, so all of that is going to make your steps, on average, be on the order of five to ten hours, presumably. 
Um, but yes, asynchronous is is key. I still think it would be interesting to demonstrate a stored program computer without asynchronous computing uh, with a oscillator like we talked about before, a central oscillator. I still think that would be a useful demonstration, but it's much, much less powerful. And so ideally, we just skip to asynchronous computation. Um, and can you do kind of multiple distinct computations that have no no re relevance to one another um, in the same medium. So Boyo was asking earlier, how do you have your processing tiles read information from different inputs? And for that, it, the processing tile needs to know, I'm going to look for uh, memory tile A, and then once I find that, I'm going to transfer its information to memory tile B. Um, that's, a, that's one transfer instruction. And then you'll search for your next one at transfer C. Um, so if some of your processing tiles are, their surface reaction says I'm looking for address A, and another subpopulation says I'm looking for address D, well then they're already going to be uh, partitioned into running the code at address A and address D in that sense. So it's kind of built into the system there. Sounds like there is going to be a lot of orthogonal sequence design problem will there be so it depends um on a few things uh this the surface reactions shouldn't require m that much uh because you only need a limited set of surface reactions because you're reusing the same components in different geometric locations that's the reason to use the surface reactions the place where you need orthogonality is going to be on the addresses of the tiles um you can only have as much memory as you have address space. Um, that's an open question. Um, but Lulu's uh, tile displacement paper, I think, has 11 bits of information on the side um, that are encoded in the sticky ends on the side. Um, so it, conceivably, you could get quite a bit of address space there. Um, but yeah, that will definitely be an issue. One way to mitigate that is to use one universal address, have all of the tiles be able to bind with everybody else, but only have them have them query the address encoded on the surface of the tile um, when they bind. So you bind to a universal neighbor, you check its first four bits of information or first 10 bits of information that encode its address, and you say, if, if those 10 bits of information match the address I'm looking for, well, then I'll do the transfer instruction, but I'm going to first check those that address tag on on the data encoded at that memory tile. That would be one way to get additional memory space, um, but it might make things slow because then you have to search through a lot more universal address space. Another thing to keep in mind is, at least right now, I'm targeting 10 to 100 lines of a program. Um, so maybe you don't need that much address space to execute relatively simple programs. Um, and that might seem really small, um, but for reference, I think the the biggest uh, molecular program that I've seen so far is about 130 strands, and that can be encoded in one line of a MATLAB program. So if, if I open MATLAB, I could write that entire square root circuit in one line of code, um, even though it's quite elegant for the molecules to do it, it still is just really one step of a stored program computer um, equivalent program. So 10 lines we could do, 
10 times more than that potentially. Um, and I don't think you would need that much address space to encode 10 tiles worth of memory instructions. But to get to a thousand or much bigger, then yeah, you, the orthogonality will be in the address space of your various tiles. So are these memory tiles kind of, um, are, are they diffusive? Um, is, yeah. So are, are there any way, Do you, have you thought about any architectures where you kind of have maybe a memory array on a surface where you kind of actively go and fetch something at position X and Y, um, which might then enable you to, to massively increase the storage capacity? Can it increase the storage capacity? Yeah. I like that. Your hardware, your hardware will probably be more complicated. And again, that might be beyond the limitations of like what if I squint my eyes and, and cross my fingers and hope we can implement it in the lab. I think already that might be beyond what we can currently do. But maybe in five years, we would be able to build something like that. The other thing you get to with if you if you took all of this, say, and just put it on one array, um, like don't have anything diffusing around, just have one array immobilized on a surface and have it be 10,000 tiles by 10,000 tiles. Um, the one issue you run into then is for information to propagate from one far edge of the 10,000 by 10,000 array to the other edge can take quite a bit of time and you might need quite a bit of wire crossovers equivalent to a wire crossover, at least um, in an electronic circuit, um, where... Uh, that takes up quite a bit of space to get two parallel, uh, two orthogonal wires to not transmit information to each other if they're not supposed to be connected. Um, so you get into those sorts of scaling issues if you just try to make everything on one big array. You also get to yield issues. So making that array will be quite challenging. Um, but also, probably the bigger the array you get, the lower the yield is going to be. So dimerization, you can get quite good yield. Um, if you, the Mona Lisa, uh, has what I think eight by eight, uh, could be forgetting that exact number. Um, and that still is reasonable yield, but it's, you know, it's not it's certainly well below, uh, a hundred. Uh, and if you went up to 10,000 by 10,000, I think your yield would suffer quite a bit. So where, where are you on the experimental front? Is this completely theoretical? Have you started any experiments? Yeah. Uh, yes to the appreciating the question, not yes to have started experiments. Um, so what I've talked about so far is is um, theory and simulation. Um, in the lab, I think that two of the most challenging um, two of the most challenging components are getting synchronization. Uh, as we've talked about, so that all of your circuits components uh, know when to execute. Um, and then also getting the addresses to bind and transmit some sort of information that they have bound to propagate the next transfer instruction and then unbind. So bind, do something, and unbind. Um, those are two things that I'm exploring in the lab. Um, the binding and unbinding is a small step forward from the existing tile displacement um, paper, uh, which which I did not work on, but I'm trying to extend that uh, to be able to, to these, do these sorts of operations. And then the synchronization, um, 
I have done a fair amount with, um, but it really boils down to an oscillator. So anything that can execute instruction one and then instruction two and then instruction three and instruction four, where these instructions might loop, is an oscillator, right? Because it can loop through on itself. Um, so we need to get a good motif for building these types of oscillations. Um, in the architecture that we've been talking about with all these tiles, each population of tiles will need to essentially be its own oscillator in that it's, it executes its instruction and then it waits until everybody's caught up and then it executes its next one that's like a bunch of spikes that turns into an oscillatory signal if you want. And you'll need a bunch of different ones. Um, and right now, building those types of oscillators uh, is really hard. Uh, and it's been done uh, with enzyme-free circuits uh, with up to about three oscillation cycles, but they peter out, they damp quite quickly. And uh, it's been done with enzymes um, with a substantially more number, maybe 10 to, to 30 oscillations. But then enzymes also will like go and try to transcribe your origami tiles and cause all kinds of other issues. Um, so I'm trying to avoid using them if possible because of their interactions with nanostructures. Um, so then if you go back to DNA oscillators, the issue comes to fuel consumption, energy consumption. Um, how do you pack in more energy into your system um, to drive the oscillations longer, but then don't cause terrible leaks to happen uh, that just destroy everything. And then also you're gonna be loading this, presumably you have an oscillating signal, but you're going to have to have it driving some downstream process. Uh, so you're taking energy out of the system, so you need to also compensate for that. So that gets into my main uh, body of experimental work, which is trying to build uh, a power supply, a battery that can drive dynamic DNA circuits for much longer than they've been driven in the past. I'm trying to get to 10 cycles for the neck for the you know initial round. I'd be quite happy if that works with these um, battery devices. And then ideally I'd like to scale, I think it's possible uh, to get it up to 100 cycles. Um, hard, very hard, um, but possible to do. Um, so that's where my experimental work has been uh, is developing these sorts of primitive motifs. Um, the, what that actually, that chemical battery is, um, is a high concentration reversible reaction. It's analogous to a, a pH buffer where you have uh, uh, an acid dissociating uh, into your uh, hydronium ion uh, reversibly. And we can build these types of high concentration reversible reactions um, as buffers with DNA. Uh, which is something I showed in the past, but I only did it with a single strand of DNA. So now if you want to buffer a, a circuit or uh, a structure, then you need much more uh, elaborate motifs um, for actually buffering those types of devices. And that's where I've been uh, experimentally is trying to buffer complex enough motifs to drive an oscillatory signal for 10 plus cycles. Oh, that's really cool. Um, is there... Is, so is this battery kind of, it, it's a buffer, and then once you've used up all of that um, buffer capacity, that's, that's it? Or is there any way to replenish it dynamically whilst it's happening? Yeah, great question. Uh, uh, 
it's it's fun talking with y'all. Feels like a like a miniature like a breakout session at a DNA conference. It's very exhilarating after all of COVID isolation. Um, but uh, yeah, you can recharge them. Uh, there's a few different ways people have done it. You can just um, uh, pipette in more of the circuit at some point, but then you also have waste accumulation. Um, so w one thing that um, a master's student and I worked on at uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, Chin Yu, is uh, a pumping system that continuously resupplies your, uh, it, it can take any circuit um, and makes it run in a pump system for multiple cycles. And this is actually taking a step back. If you, it's like, I like to think of it as like plugging your device into the wall, uh, into, a, a, into a socket in the wall. You can run forever. If you aren't plugged into the wall, you have the buffer battery. Well, then it can run for a certain number of cycles before the battery dies. And then maybe you plug it into the wall to recharge the battery. But if we're just for now conceptually looking at the plugging it into the wall motif, you don't need the battery at all during that. So for this, you can take any existing DNA circuit, and we did it with the 2006 uh, C-Lig original enzyme-free DNA strand displacement gates. Uh, and we just took his device and we put it into the pump setup, very simple chemostat pump setup, and showed that we can get it to run, I think we did 10 cycles um, of different inputs uh, that were being flowed into the system and the, the circuit responds uh, appropriately adjusting its output according to the inputs. Um, so that's that's how you can recharge any circuit. Uh, as long as it's connected to the pumps, you can keep getting it to work. You don't need to make any chemical modification, which is kind of a, a neat thing because there's a lot of circuits out there that maybe, well, if you could keep them working for more than one cycle without any chemical modification, it'd be quite interesting. Um, you can do that for the buffer as well. The, the math for both the chemostat and a set of buffering reactions actually works out to be the same. The ODEs are identical um, or, or nearly identical. So they're doing the same thing of uh, regenerating your, your reactions over time. Um, but one of them is consuming a depletable uh, resource in order to do that. And the other one is using a mechanical motif to do that. But you could use the plug into the wall pump motif to regenerate any circuit, including a buffer circuit, and then unplug it from the wall after the buffer is recharged, let it run for 10 cycles, disconnect it, and then plug it back in when you want to recharge it. Oh, nice. Um, okay, and in the time we have left, I thought it might be nice to get your perspective on some more personal questions, particularly with the transition from grad school to postdoc uh, still fresh in your mind. Were there any big surprises for you in that transition that you weren't expecting? Yeah, lots of big surprises. Uh, I don't know that I have time to enumerate all of the surprises. Um, but I think that... Probably the biggest surprise um, is just knowing that in a PhD, you have all the time in the world and you're trying to work towards your papers. And maybe if you're your fourth year or fifth year, you're working towards your dissertation if that's how your program works. But early on, you're just exploring. I think in the postdoc stage, it feels much more like... Um, you're exploring, but you're building the groundwork for what you want your, your next stage to be. So this is your chance to, with no tenure clock, uh, 
to get the hardest pieces of your long-term goals working so that when you do have your 10-year clock, if you're so lucky, um, then you don't have to build those hardest initial pieces. You have them under your belt already to use. Um, that to me has been the one of the biggest differences between uh, PhD and, and postdoc. Um, and uh, did you always know you wanted to stay in academia? Have you had any temptations to sell out and go to industry? Or... <laughs> um, well, this might be controversial, and I, I hope it doesn't has too many repercussions, but I actually don't like academia. Um, I think that there's a lot of things about it that are quite negative, um, academia as a whole. But I love molecular programming, just like all of you do, and presumably all of your listeners. It is so cool to be programming with molecules, and it really feels like we're part of a second computer revolution that is going to really change how science and technology works. Uh, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 100 years from now. We don't know the time frame, but this is a paradigm shift in how humans are interacting with matter. Uh, and being part of that is so exhilarating. So I want to keep being a part of that. I don't see clear paths to do the type of things that I want to do for molecular programming without being in academia. Therefore, my love and joy of molecular programming supersedes my distaste for the world of academia. Uh, if I were so lucky to be able to continue on this path, uh, or fortunate perhaps is better word than luck, um, then I would like to use academia as a launching point for molecular programming and industry. Uh, quite likely many other people um, feel this way, whereas if we get the foundational science far enough along, well, then we can spin off startups and we can start the, the, the intels and uh, whatnot of molecular programming. Um, presumably not just one person. It's going to be a bigger cluster, um, all of us who, who managed to stick along. So that would be the dream. Um, along those lines, though, uh, I would like to, to unveil another small project, or not small project, big project, um, that uh, myself and a few other students at Caltech have been working on, and we'd like to invite participation from, from other people in the field. Um, we've noticed that there's this trend where you, it's getting harder and harder for young incoming students to wrap their mind around the field, see what it is, and start making their contributions. So like, if you're a brand fresh student, one, you have to identify molecular programming as a field, which most college students don't necessarily have that information. And then two, you have to go find this like 10,000 pieces of lore that are scattered across all these different papers that might be behind paywalls. And you don't even know what papers they are. If you're lucky to have a great advisor, um, like I've been, uh, then you can be told which papers to go read, but they all, you know, modify each other and, and, and supersede in different ways. There's not one central location for that. Um, so Namata Saraf and William Poole and I have been trying to find ways to build a, to create a textbook for molecular programming. Um, and we'd like to do this as a collaborative process. Uh, we think that there's this groundswell of energy and support from early career molecular programmers, from, from you here and from our listeners, where we, we want to build and grow this field 
and reach this exponential stage where we're not bringing in one new researcher a year, but many. And I think that's what MolePigs is kind of getting at. We're building this community where we can work together. Um, so for the textbook, we'd like to invite interested people to, to join us on the editorial board to decide what the textbook is about, although we have some initial concepts and we'd like it to be about the field as a whole. And then we'd like to invite experts and passionate molecular programmers to contribute their section or chapter or paragraph on on what they're most uh, knowledgeable about to the textbook to be edited together so that we can get one central location all of the mature principles of molecular programming to draw in and inspire and support uh, early career molecular programmers as we proceed to the next stage. There will be more information about that, but MolePigs seems like a great place to be to be bringing this about, and I'm hoping that many MolePigs subscribers um, will be interested in in hearing more and maybe contributing to this type of uh, grassroots project. Yeah, thanks for the announcement. I I know I'm really excited by that idea, and yeah, I'm sure everyone everyone will be. Um, is is this going to be kind of like a traditional textbook? Are there going to be any maybe like maybe an open source collaboration or what? Well, kind of approach you taking yeah we'd like it to be open source uh so our motivation here is it's not money uh we're we're not gonna get rich um we want to drive the field uh it's also not altruism either though like we don't just want to have this as a as a line on our uh you know broader impact section of an nsf we want this to to drive and stimulate the field um so to do that, we think keeping it open source uh, is the best option. Uh, it might be for the first few copies, first thousand copies or so, it might be $5 or some uh, you know, nominal fee so that we can recoup our publishing costs. But if we're able to find those publishing costs in other ways, which is what we're looking for right now, then it would just be fully open source and, and free. Um, one other thing we're working with uh, is figuring out how do we update it over time. So right now we want it to be, here's what's known, you know, what, not not the cutting edge, but here's what's known that's not really going to change that much about molecular programming, um, so that early career people can can wrap their mind around it very easily. But over time, that that cutting edge or bleeding edge is going to be changing, and so we can incorporate and change and add more content. Um, so we'd like to find ways to not just make one round of the textbook but but make it updatable probably means an electronic copy uh open source obviously like we said uh but we also really want to have like a tangible thing so the open source copy presumably will be free but i i think you'll be able to like pay the printing costs and get a physical thing that contains all of this wisdom and lore concentrated in one place and you can flip to whichever page you want uh at your at your leisure um so presumably it'll it'll have both of those aspects I, I, i'm very excited uh, about this now uh, to, to what uh, uh for what background will this book be targeted like pure uh, like will it be mainly for engineers will it be quite a mathematical textbook um or will it be kind of more high level for anyone um just finishing up their undergraduate degrees hoping to move into graduate school yeah we'd like it to be for any undergraduates senior undergraduates and and early graduate students too as they're ready to learn about molecular programming or, or have just started learning and really want to dive in and get all of the, the nitty-gritty details, like, I don't know, how do you get kinetic rates for four-way strand displacement? Like, ha have all of that in there. Um, it's really targeted towards that. It could also be used for 
incredibly motivated high school students. Uh, I probably wasn't motivated enough in high school to do that, but we've seen a lot of high school students who have participated in various labs that I've been in who are as advanced as a college student. So I don't want to restrict it just to that age group necessarily. And then also interested professors who might want to use it to teach or teachers um, uh, could also use it in that manner as well um, for classes. Um, but from the to try to answer your question in a little more detail, we want to have it have all of the necessary theory and mathematics to understand how these pieces work, but not so dense as to scare off uh, a, a scientifically literate, mathematically literate college student uh, who maybe doesn't understand all of the uh, intense intricacies, intricacies of, uh, of computer science. So... Yes, math, but not only math, and you don't need to be a abstract mathematician to understand it. For authors and editors uh, who this pitch is, is targeted towards right now, uh, who might want to contribute, we want everybody, if you think you're a molecular programmer, we and you have time, so presumably earlier stage the better. Uh, you don't have to be a professor with a 20 people in your lab in order to be considered an expert to contribute to this book. But if you're working in molecular programming and you're excited by it and you have time, uh, then we want you, if you're a theorist, we want you, if you're an experimentalist, um, we want to be able to reflect um, all aspects of the field. And for these people who are starting their journey in, in high school or, or in, um, in college, what, what kind of advice might you tell them, might you put in the preface, um, to kind of help them on their on their way of the textbook um i can't say right now because we haven't written that and this is uh certainly not my project alone uh right now it's con conceived uh by namata and and will and myself uh but hopefully very shortly that leadership will expand to broader groups so i don't know what the uh, introduction will say because that will be however many people are participating it. We'll get to decide what the introduction says. But if I was just uh, speculating a little bit uh, on high school students getting into molecular programming independent from the textbook, um, I have two thoughts. One is that the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Elon Musk and uh, all of the people in traditional little what we consider traditional technology, molecular programming aside, uh, who are not the first generation. Those people for molecular programming are sitting in high school classrooms right now. So like we're, we are the turning in von Neumann generation, or perhaps that's like Ned and, and, and Winfrey, perhaps we're people who uh, might not be as big of names, myself at least, uh, but that. We are that first generation, but the people who are going to take what we're doing and transform it into this second computer revolution, this chemical computer revolution, they're still in high school, maybe in elementary school. Uh, and so if we want to draw them into this profound paradigm shift, uh, we need to reach out to them and, and, and try to break down these barriers and draw them in. So, so more plans we can make now are going to help the field in, in 10 years if we can start to draw these people in. Advice that I would actually give to them, 
I think what's helped me most for molecular programming is trying to say, what do you want the world to look like in a hundred years or 50 years? Uh, you know, some, some long-term thing, some lifespan type of time scale, and then say, well, how do we work towards that? Because I think if you get into science, if you, if you look at what we do day to day, it's like we pipette a drop of liquid into another drop of liquid. That's, that's quite boring to everybody. I think I is, can safely say, uh, but the longer term vision of why it's interesting to pipette that clear drop of liquid into another drop uh, is because of this paradigm shift that you have to really look on the long term to see. And I think high school students are uniquely positioned to, the groundwork has been done for molecular programming to take off. Uh, and so they're positioned to capitalize on that uh, in some really exciting ways. What a great way to, to end this podcast. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. I, I really had a great time talking with you. Uh, I'm sure everyone else will say the same. Um, yeah, it is really interesting stuff. Um, Dominic will be staying around on our forum for an Oink Me Anything, as we call it, in which you can ask him any questions you have, which I'm sure will be many about his work, life, or, or this textbook, or anything really. So please do join us over there. If you haven't yet joined the forum, you'll find an invite link in our newsletters, or you can sign up directly at talk.molpi.gs, M-O-L-P-I.gs. This is it from us for 2020. We hope you have a safe and happy holiday wherever you may be, and that we'll start the new year with renewed hope. And thank you for listening.